that she'd never been round here before. That she hung out in the Cologne Hotel with the Cubans in the Puerto Teso. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Simon Head. Simon is the director and creative force behind Subversives, a new documentary covering the 30-plus year history of iconic Toronto band Lowest of the Low. It's the story of a band that stuck to its independent rock roots until the major record labels came calling in the mid-90s. It covers their endless touring and both their survival and revival through multiple breakups and personnel changes. Simon got inside of Lois of the Lowe's world and thus had access to bring so many of their stories to life directly from band members, supporters, and hangers-on alike. Welcome, Simon, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Hey, Andrew. I am I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on your show. I come to you from sunny Uxbridge, Ontario, uh, about an hour and 15 outside of uh, Toronto, can be longer on rush hour days. Excellent. Well, the air is definitely cleaner in Uxbridge, so it's good that you got out of the city. I want to jump right into the topic at hand. Who is the subject of your documentary, the band known as Lois the Low? Uh, Lois the Low are an independent band for the better part. They, they are um, a, a politically conscious band. They're a band that fight for freedom of speech for people and they fight for uh, the, you know, Aboriginal rights. They fight for any type of cause. They are on board for that type of thing. Uh, they've never stood down. They've, they've fought fascists. They've had, <laughs> they've had uh, a lot of uh, history dealing with the political climate of what Canada can be. Uh, They're also an independent band that has uh, made six or seven records in their career. They've broken up a couple of times. They went through uh, a lot of uh, member changes over the period of the past 15 years. They've now landed on a, a, a solid version of what the lowest low is, and there doesn't look to be any change coming. They're putting a new record out next year. They just put a new record out last year. Um, Ron Hawkins, uh, don't confuse him with Ronnie Rompin' Ronnie Hawkins. There's no relation he is a, a very prolific writer, and on whether it's been Lois and Lowe or his solo project, has on average released one record per year for the past 30 plus years. Very, very cool uh, band of guys to work with, and um, I'm their front of house tour manager, so I do their sound and I make sure that they get to the venue on time. Uh, and I'll tell you, 30 years ago, that wouldn't have been a job I would, uh, wouldn't be too excited about. Well, you you grew into it, and of course, it gave you all these great stories from a firsthand perspective. Where did the documentary title "Subversives" come from? 
Actually, it's one of their songs on their first album, Shakespeare My Butt, is called Subversives. And it's a, it was a, a song that Ron recorded off the, live off the floor uh, while they were recording their album, Shakespeare My Butt. You know, we don't need to get into what, the, <laughs> you know, what it's all about. But, you know, that, that band has basically been subversive to any type of uh, major label, uh, any type of right-wing fa- right fascism or uh, political discourse. They are, uh, they're a band of that. They are subversive. Now, Simon, you mentioned your involvement with them today. When and how did you first get involved with Lois and Low? In the early 2000s, the band was getting back together to do a reunion show at the Molson Amphitheater, which is now called the Budweiser Stage. I was pretty good friends with John Arnott, the original bass player. We had worked together at a few venues. Uh, we worked together at a place, people might not remember this place, a place called Ted's Wrecking Yard, which was on uh, College Street. John brought me in to do sound on days that he couldn't do it, and uh, we became good friends. He recorded some music for me, produced some music of my own. And uh, so when the band was getting back together, they needed a guitar tech. And uh, I got the call from John saying, hey, we're doing the CTV morning show. Would you like to get up at some ungodly hour and show up to the CTV building sort of up by the 401 and become... Uh, our guitar tech. And then we're also doing the Molson Amphitheater and then some more shows. Who knows what's going to happen? And I said, sure, no matter. So I ended up doing that and I did the Molson Amphitheater show, which is with a very kind of iconic show if you were a band, into the band at the time. It was with uh, a band called the Weaker Vans and Billy Bragg. They called it Commie Night in Canada. <laughs> That's what they called it that night. On the Global Mail called it the Commie Night in Canada. Um, and it was, a, you know, one of these special nights, you know, sold out show at the Molson Amphitheater uh, I, I, you know, I, I wasn't doing sound. A guy named Brian Power was doing sound for them at the time. And I enjoyed my, pl- I enjoyed my spot where I was at. Cause I got to see from side stage what it, what it meant for the magic of this band, uh, cut to about 10, 15 years later, uh, a guy named Jeff Rogers was managing the band and I knew Jeff from, uh, bands I'd worked with like Rusty. Uh, and he, he, somehow I got in touch with Ron and I'm like, Ron, let me, Let's. I want to work with your band. And he said, sure, why not? So I ended up doing, the next show I did was a morning show on Global at uh, some ungodly hour. And that was for the Do, Do the Right, ne- right Now album, which was their sort of press and promo of that album, 2017. So that's how I kind of came into the fold, sort of filling in for a guy named Mark Crane, who was their front of house guy at the time. And then I ended up sort of getting bumped up to the, to the majors, if you, if you, if you may. That's great. You had to put in your time. Now, I want to ask you, Simon, is being a fan or at least being aware of the band a prerequisite for enjoying your doc? No, it's it's pretty wide open. The story is pretty, pretty broad when it comes to, you know, anyone who's been in art or worked in art or in the music industry can really relate to this this story. It's It's not unique to anybody. Everybody's had that time where, you know, they have that vision of grandeur, like, we're going to make it, we're going to be huge, and we're going to be rock stars or we don't want to be rock stars or we're going to make an impact. And, and everybody has that type of energy to them when they're artists, because they think I'm going to make art for people to appreciate. And so that is sort of, and and what comes with it is about 20% success and about 80% failure. And the question is, are you going to carry on to get rejected more and keep creating art because you love doing it? Or are you going to just quit? And um, sadly, a lot of people, they quit. But that's sort of like, there's this form of Darwinism with music industry. Like people who can handle it, they stay. 
and they live and they, they prosper. And some are huge, some are successful. And then what they do is they help the people below them. It's, a, it's this sort of community. And then the unhealthy side of it is people turn their backs on the people that brought them, brought them to, the, to the front and sort of keep running and move to the States and become rock stars and forget who their friends were. The lowest of the low are never that. You know, and sometimes to their detriment that that maybe sometimes they should have been a little bit gone from the money, as they say. I think that's what's very interesting about this story. Just what you're saying about it. You can go back, of course, hindsight's 2020. You can see all these inflection or decision points that they had to make. How would you describe the format of your doc? It's in three acts. So uh, there's a, a first act, which sort of goes into their first um, becoming the band. It actually goes back to the early 80s when uh, David Alexander and Ron were in a band called uh, Social Insecurity. And it was like a punk rock band, a Marxist type of, you know, socialist punk rock band, straight edge. Uh, and then it became a band called Popular Front. And that was when Stephen Stanley joined the band, a former guest of your show. And, and then they released this mega huge popular record that called Shakespeare My Butt, the worst name you could ever name a, an album with the worst name you could ever name a band and became this sort of Toronto staple and institution of, of um, people talking about like streetcars. Nobody knew what a streetcar was until, you know, if you're from Vancouver, you wouldn't know what a streetcar is. You know, uh, sidebar, there was somebody came up to me and said, do you know where the street trains are? I'm like, well, you, you know, from Toronto. So that's, that's the first act. The second act is when they get signed to a major record label and then subsequently break up. Third is now gets into more of the modern, the newer, the 2000s versions of the band. Uh, and it has resolve, and it has drama, and it has tears, and has, well, it doesn't really have tears, but it has a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, there's, like like I said, it's a traditional three-act um, movie, where hopefully it answers some questions at the end of it all. Well, what's very interesting, Simon, are your qualifications and experience in putting together this documentary film. Apparently, you had none. I had none. I've watched a few. Yeah, I the very funny, well, it's not funny, it's kind of weird, but it sort of gives you an idea of who Ron Hawkins, the leader of the band, is. I texted or emailed or called him, I can't remember what it was, but I said, hey, and I prefaced my pitch by saying, I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. Uh, and I want to do a documentary in your band, and I, I had no idea what that meant. I didn't know, like, I didn't know, like, I had a camera, I guess, and I had sort of an idea I have this podcast that I've been doing for many years at this point. And so I thought, well, I, I ask pretty good questions. You know, I should be able to get some stories out of people. And, and, and originally it was just going to be tour stories and just talking about the band. And then it started getting more of what it was. So I learned on the job in a big way. And I had a bit of a leg up because I've been doing this for so long. And I had sort of a close personal relationship with the band that I could ask the questions that coming into it might be a little guarded. The answers might be more guarded. So I felt like I had a little bit of an inside um, tip into the workings of the band and knew how to navigate my way in through the question periods. And and I learned a lot. It, uh, there's one moment where I actually, I brought my mom in to uh, transcribe all the interviews. And I thought, like, I have reinvented the wheel. Like, this is, this is the, this is what you should be doing in all documentaries. And I spoke to my friend Mina in Vancouver and she goes, yeah, dumb, dumb. That's what people do. They transcribe it, and that's how people figure out where all it is. Because I, I have hours and hours of of interviews, and you know, if it's a, an hour and a half or hour and forty five minutes, I have over thirty five hours of interviews with people. 
Um, it traveled all over the place, and um, there's a lot of stories with that. But I just learned like a few things, like how to model my questions, like form my questions, because the podcast I do is all about just chit chatting, and we come up with amazing ways of solving the universe. But it's different when you start form make like a formulaic question answering thing, you know. And kudos to you because you do it so well. I, I, I you know, I don't do that well. So I, I, I really got into that. And people, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. Everything I sort of thought I came up with it originated was all been done before. Um, so which is good it means that I'm sort of in going in the right direction. And uh, you know, it worked out. It, like in like everything, it's luck. I'm kind of a I gotta go getter. I'll go get it, whether and I'll put the blinders on to make sure I get it. And you know, you know, damn the torpedoes, we're gonna get through this. And and it it kind of paid off in a way to make sure that I had the sort of commitment to make sure that I had to finish this thing. You know, so. Well, I think that's very fulfilling when you attack something and then it turns out you're on the right track. And uh, as you know, it's sometimes better what you don't know. You just got to jump into it and do it. And yeah. I did want to ask, with so many interviews, were you able to interview everyone you wanted to interview? And were your target subjects agreeable to the process? There was a few that I wanted to interview. Uh, for instance, I wanted to interview a guy named Alan Reed. And Alan Reed basically is the Junos. He runs the Junos. I just couldn't nail it down. He was just either there's a, a period of time where he is just too busy. And then there's like probably after the Junos is maybe a week where you can sort of, hey, Alan, let's talk again. And so that never came to fruition. And so I, and I just, I put his picture up, you know, and said, this is Alan Reed. <laughs> you know, he's a guy who, who basically signed them to a major record label. An independent record being uh, um, distributed through a major label is kind of a new thing. And, and the low kind of forged that, that route on how it meant. So how they were going to make like some money rather than get sort of taken by the man. Yeah, Alan's one of them. Who else? I spoke with uh, Art Bergman, which was one of those moments where, like, he has the Order of Canada. He's a huge thing when it comes to political punk rock. He is a, a person, like, he, he was in a punk rock band called the Young Canadians, and he's this icon. And he lived, like, in the middle of nowhere at the time, like, just north of Calgary. And I flew in to, like, to meet with Art Bergman. And I was super excited because he's, like, a kind of a hero. And, uh, I called him, I, I, we were going through email at, at the time, so I, I got to his place, and he uh, he's like, came out, and he's like, oh, hey, you're here. And I'm like, yeah, I'm here. He goes, can we go buy some beer? I'm like, sure, why not? So he's in his pajamas, so he goes into the house, and I'm like, sitting out waiting to take him, and I'm like, let's, what's going on? And like 20 minutes go by, and I bang on the door, I go, Art, what's going on? And he goes, oh, sorry, I forgot, I forgot, he <laughs> forgot I was there. Like, I'd flown in from Toronto to Calgary. Like, there was no other reason I was there. And I was out in his front, you know, I was going to go buy some beer. So that that was one weird, kind of weird story where it was like, I don't know if this is going to work, you know. And, you know, like art is, art talks about art. He didn't really talk much about the lowest of the low. So for me, it was a really exciting, you know, there was a whole, actually, there's a whole special features. It's called Life Imitates Art. And it's just t people talking about Art Bergman because... I didn't, you know, it was such a beautiful shot, you know, being out in the middle of nowhere, you can sort of see the foothills and the mountains in the background. Well, I thought one of the great things was all the way you framed your interviews where the subject was in the center of the frame and they were all in different places. They weren't in some antiseptic studio. They were where they are, so to speak. So I thought that was nice the way you interspersed it and met them on their ground, so to speak. 
I want to ask you about the nuts and bolts of documentary production and presentation. Were there permissions or rights clearances needed for archival footage or for the music itself? I'm so glad you asked that question. Yes, I had to ask Ron because Ron owns all the publishing for the band. And Ron is the person. It's quite literally, you just get a deal memo and you say, hey, can I use all your music? And some people, if they were not Ron, they'd be like, you can use this song, you can do this song, but you can't use that song. Here's the songs you can't use. Anything else is fair dues. He let me use any song I wanted. So any song that was on there, you know, I think there was a little bit of a, an issue with some of the, the Do The Right Now because Warner Brothers still owns some of it. But it's just a micro-budget documentary. I, I hope they don't come, you know, I think I put 10 seconds of it and under that, whatever the Americans call that, a fair use or whatever. I had a bit of a problem, but I connected with uh, a guy who got me in touch with the Bell Media people about getting much music footage. And I emailed, I said, listen, it's a, it's a passion project. I have no budget. I would like to use some interviews that you might have of Lois of the Low to prop and help up my story of this documentary I'm doing. Once again, passion project, there's no budget. I got the rate sheet, which is like hundreds of dollars per second just for using, and there was a $100 an hour fee to go find it. And I needed to tell them what minute of the day, what day it was, and what year it was. And Iran actually off camera says, I don't remember 1992. So I have no idea when any of this stuff happened. So I thought, oh, you know what? CBC will be more uh, forgiving. They understand what art is. It is our Canadian national broadcasting. Same thing. More money. I said, uh, it's just me. I'm just a guy who wants to get the stuff. And by the way, I had all the footage that I needed from the, this Ear to the Ground show. They, they were, there's a show on CBC called Ear to the Ground, and they were one of the subjects in it. Like, a, there's 45 minutes of the people, like David Suzuki talking about Los of Load, Doug Gilmore, like all these people talking about the band, uh, Bruce, Bruce McCullough. And he's like, they're the same thing. It costs you money, even though you own it. And I said, well, what happened? She goes, I don't we don't care if you're Martin Scorsese or Simon Head. The rate's the same. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, thanks. And then, you know what? I snuck a little bit of other stuff in there that hopefully won't get me in trouble. Uh, it got cleared. Everything's clear. But but that's why you buy uh, errors and omissions insurance is to... that Actually, the Much Music documentary is going through a huge thing about it right now, about their universal stuff they put on from Universal Music. All Canadian Universal, too, by the way. But yeah, that was a big, big problem. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't begrudge you if you just took that part out. Because to me, it's like, I think that should be some change about art and culture in Canada should be promoted. And I shouldn't have to pay $400 for 25 seconds just for Canada to use uh, Stephen Stanley banging his head at the Kumbaya Festival in 1994. It, I'm sorry. It doesn't make sense to me, you know. I would say that's the most surprising thing I've heard and that I would have expected there'd be some recognition of, let's call it the scale or scope of the project in recognition to how they charge for that. So obviously that was a huge lesson learned, so to speak, for you going through this ostensibly for the first time. Oh yeah. Like if it was a band that like a huge rock and roll band, you know, enter whatever, any band from Canada when they have, it would be near impossible to do anything. Like if I wanted to do something, say on Platinum Blonde, impossible there's no way i'd get any of that stuff and they've been they're like the they were like the babies of much music the early days of much music to get it i'd have to have a 
a GoFundMe page that would probably get me about thirty dollars or $40,000 just to make that possible. And by then, there's no guarantee you're ever going to make any of that money back. Simon, now that you are no longer a rookie documentary filmmaker, what are some of the other things that surprised you, or let's call them lessons learned from the whole experience? I learned a lot about file management and editing. I learned a lot about tightening up the story. Tightening up a story is 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 sort of like a it was it was news to me because I thought you know it's going to be probably maybe a three parter because it was really long when I first did the cut. And what I heard back from my friend Derek Emerson, who actually I sent it to him, and he came back with these notes that he was prefacing like you're going to hate me, but but that was what I learned about like taking notes from people. What I was surprisingly, and what he was surprised that I wasn't fully offended by the things he was saying. I learned a lot about myself because. I, I think what when you take critical notes from people and they start telling you like this part's crap and this part's pretty good and this could be better, um, they were like always prefacing like, well, you, you're probably going to hate what I have to say. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We're we're a team now. We're we're in this together because if you just went, oh, it's good. It's good. Keep going. Then I know you'd be lying to me. Right. It's really easy to say it's great. Carry on with what you're doing. But if someone comes in with an actual real note saying, this has to change. This doesn't make sense. Please make this make sense. And, you know, I think Derek every day when I talk about this with people that he really tightened this story up and he's an author. He writes books. Uh, he's doing one on Gary Top right now, a promoter out of Toronto. Uh, he did one on the hardcore scene and, and he just salts at the earth and, and an old buddy, you know, and, and now a comrade and ally in this vibe. <laughs> well, I think the editing process is what's really super interesting you talked about, you know, you had over 30 hours of interview footage. Your first cut came in over three hours. You eventually got it down to two hours. You talk about this editing process of getting feedback from people. But I wondered, where'd you get the best feedback from? Was it from low to low super fans or from viewers that may not have known much about the band at all? Well, funny thing, when the band watched it, there was a few things about the, the movie that a few members of the bands were not particularly happy with. Basically, because Ron has no filter and he'll say whatever he feels. And, you know, that's what I love about Ron. But the band felt like, well, hold on a second. You got we're a band. We need to all talk together about things. And so a few members of the bands were like kind of like watching their own life and had way closer to it. So it was tough to really take notes from the band. And so when I take I would get this email from a band member and I go, hey, remember when remember when the label or your manager came to you and said, hey, you should shorten Rosie and Gray by half? And what did you tell them? I probably wasn't like, hey, thanks for your note. And so I'm not saying that, but I'm going to say, you know, what would you say? I'm asking you the question, you know. But when it came to what, you know, that's an interesting line between I didn't want to pander to the to the audience. I wanted to make sure that the audience would get something that was more universal to what the story is, which, like I said in the early part, it was... It's a universal story. There's everybody's had that who's been in that type of thing, whether you an artist or a graphic designer or an author, they've had that type of sniff at what might be success. And then it sometimes gets, it fails based on what your ethics or what your beliefs are or what you've, how you are treated within the industry. Cause that's very important. Cause you know, in this day and age we have, there's no managers really. The, the band is the brand. And if the band goes off, brand, I'm using quotations, the manager is there to sort of, you know, soften the blow to the people who might be peeved at the band. 
So going back to the, I didn't want to pander to the audience. I wanted to make sure that they got something that uh, Joe Schmo off the street. And I actually have had some, you know, not as many, but I've had lots of great compliments from people who are like, I had no idea that this happened, you know, and, I, and people that are music people, music people, you know, my friend Derek, who hated Lois the Low in the day, by the way, he watched the movie and said, you know what? I learned something. I learned something that I like Ron Hawkins. I like him as a person. And to me, that's like, oh, that's important. And he hates, he hates, literally hates the band. <laughs> I've told the band this, so it's no secret. So to me, that that's, speaks volumes over this, you know, pandering to the crowd and making sure that they're happy. And obviously, I think the audience have come back to me and said, very, very nice. The fans and the community is, it's been very well accepted, which is, is a bonus on top as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. Now, Simon, who is Andy Koyama? Andy Koyama is, um, he, he first produced the first Lois the Low album called Shakespeare My Butt, a record that was basically recorded, the drums recorded in one day, the rest of the album took six months. And, and Andy worked in film and television, works in film and television, and uh, he eventually moved down to the United States and lives in LA, and he's, a, he's a, basically, he, he, he worked on the last John Wick movie. Like, that was his last project, and he's probably working on something now. And because I this I call it low karma, I have good low karma. I just sent him in a Facebook message and said, "Hey, you mix audio. You're a guy. Do you want to mix this movie that this full this length feature length movie that I just finished?" And he's he's interviewed in in the in the movie by the way. And he went, "Yeah, sure." And we we like the money. It cost more to fly down there than it did for the actual work done. And he mixed the movie audio of the movie for me and he also came up with some 5.1 mixes of the 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 album the classic album uh he's just it's such a you know i just think that community if after 30 years he's still willing to sort of do stuff and be a part of the community even though he's like miles and miles away andy thank you so much for dogging us you hear this show i appreciate you and thank you so much and i hope we can do more of it together i, ca- I can't describe the, the the feeling of sitting in like a movie theater mixing studio like it's the size of a movie theater with a huge screen watching this thing that sort of came from this real simple idea of like hey ron i know nothing i don't know anything to get to that point it was really emotional like i i really i choked up i got quite emotional about it and you know, and uh, the ride to get there was, that's why everything got so, I'm getting choked up now than thinking about it. So, Well, like you say, Simon, it's all about the ride. It's all about the experience. During the doc, you interviewed the brother and father of former Bare Naked Ladies singer, Stephen Page. Who are Stephen Page's brother and father? And, and why did you include them in the process? Victor, Victor Page and, and Matthew Page are Stephen Page's you know, as Matt and Stephen are, are brothers and Victor is the father. And and Victor had a distribution company, well, started distributing the Bare Naked Ladies album and called it Page Productions or Page Publications, I'm sorry. And so when they were like this, the, the, the Bare Naked Ladies yellow tape is sort of this classic independent like juggernaut alongside around the same time as Louis Lowe. So when they they spoke to uh, the band and ended up becoming their distributor for uh, Shakespeare My Butt and put it in record stores all over Canada and uh, had this really fair deal where it was like, we're not going to hold you to contract. So if you get a better record deal, bigger record deal, we're not going to hold your masters. We don't want to own anything. 
also this type of community that I think is kind of unheard of. I think I think part of the reason is that they were making so much money off, off the beer naked ladies, like, hey, we need to lose a bit of money here. But actually, that backfired on them. They ended up making as about as much more. And uh, Shakespeare, my butt, was actually higher selling at one point than that yellow tape. And they were on the same label, essentially. Yeah, I think those type of people need to get recognized to be players in all of this. And uh, and Victor says something great, but like, we had this grade and everybody thought I knew stuff about music. And then it went downhill from there. So, <laughs> you know, he's probably the same thing that everybody did. <laughs> well, Simon, and it's a six degrees of separation kind of thing. You've alluded to this. Alois Solo held the Canadian record for most independent albums sold until they were overtaken by the Bare Naked Ladies. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 200 additional episodes available anytime. We got Chef Susur Lee, Body Breaks Hal Johnson, comedian Paul Reiser, Michael Pinball Clemens, our UN Ambassador Bob Ray, Maple Leafs Captain Rick Vive, Dragon's Den's Wes Hall, and TVO's Steve Pakin. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24 7 365 wherever you get your podcasts or go to torontolegends.ca. Another interesting interview in your doc was with a band called Weddings, Parties, Anything out of Australia, no less. How is that band involved in the Lois the Low story? So they came to Canada, a guy named Bruce Eaton that used to promote shows, worked for Upper Canada Brewery. He brought the band to the Weddings, Parties, Anything to play Lee's Palace. And the lowest of the low were the opening band. And at that point, Weddings, Parties, Anything were kind of like, because they're so far away, they didn't really have like that much of an impact in Toronto. So the low played, and then everybody went gangbusters and crazy. Then Weddings, Parties, Anything played. And then what they did is they went back to their hotel and started jamming on Rosie and Gray. And what they did with that song is they took it back to Australia and turned it into a single, into a hit in Australia. So when you go to Australia, and this has happened, this is, do- this is I think this might be part of the, the documentary, I can't remember, I've done so much editing. But when um, Ron's girlfriend at the time in the 90s was in Europe, and they were playing Rosie and Gray on on their cassette player, and and so they, oh you're playing lowest of the low and she goes no 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 this is this isn't lowest of the low this is weddings parties anything this is an old traditional Australian folk song, and so they thought they thought it was like an Australian song and I'm like well who's talking about like streetcars there's no real streetcars in Australia that was like this interesting part that they turned that whole song into like this other single this other thing and it's sort of the power of of just being a good song you know. And so it's, I mean, the low, the low kind of started. I think they came back and started playing some of their songs. And there's a tribute in one of Ron Solo's songs to uh, Mick Thomas's daughter being born. So they're still friends to this day. Uh, and it looks like I went to Australia to interview people, but I didn't. The secret's out. So there's your scoop. Hey, you you read my next question. Did you actually go to Australia yourself? I guess the answer is no. How did you capture those interviews? I wish I could have the budget to fly to Australia to to interview people. No, I didn't. And actually, there's a few other places I didn't that looks like I went to, but I didn't. No, I actually met up with one of their... I met up with them, first of all. They said, well, we have a friend who has cameras and who can who does the podcast, and they can ask the questions. And I sent the questions off to this this lady, Mish, and they had the camera set up, and they set it up. And I sort of did like the video chat where I sort of just listened in 
and that's how I got that. And and also the John Arnott stuff in in uh, in Germany is done by a guy named Tristan who inter yeah Tristan who interviewed John. And then the Andy Koyama was done by a guy in down in Los Angeles who who also uh, you know sent me the footage. I did go to I did go to Vancouver and Calgary, which was part of the thing. And I was supposed to go to uh, the East Coast and do some stuff, but I I left it I left it where it was. So uh, yeah, so it does look like I went there. So it looks like this huge. I mean, that's part of the allure of movies, right? It's like it's all it's a bit of sleight of hand magic trick, right? Well, it's also credit to you. It was very nicely polished, and I did assume you went to all these places. I want to ask you about another exotic, far flung place, Buffalo, New York, was always a great city for Lois to low. They were super popular in the Queen City. Are there any plans to share your dock in the USA and specifically in the uh, Western New York area? It has, actually. I premiered it in Toronto in late September, and I actually took it to Buffalo, and we showed it at the Town Ballroom uh, a little bit, a few days after that. I took it on like a little mini tour around the late, the sort of the fall time, and, and, it, and it premiered at the Rivoli, which was kind of cool because that's, I think, like a couple of months before the Kids in the Hall had premiered or, you know what I mean? They, it was sort of, I never thought, hey, can you, maybe you should use a movie theater. That's, and I really quickly thought, no, 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 we're going to have to do it somewhere. So we did the Rivoli and then we did the Town Ballroom in the States. And um, it was, you know, it was, it's interesting because, uh, you know, the fans in, in Buffalo, they don't look at the band like the people in Toronto do. You know, they're, they treat them like it's their Bon Jovi. It's like it's it's an interesting vibe down there. People have a different view of that band. And, you know, most of the reason why it's so popular in, in Buffalo and that region is because CFNY reached that area. Their their bandwidth gets that far down uh, into the States. There is plans. I'm actually, uh, I'm working right now on a, on a licensing deal. It's not 100% signed yet, so I can't really make it. I thought I could get it. I have it sitting on my desktop and I'm, I'm ready to sort of sign it, but I can't make, I'm not going to, you know, I, there's things in the work to basically do a Blu-ray release about a limited run of Blu-rays. And then that person, that company that's lic- licensing that for the Blu-rays is also going to put it on all the platforms like Apple TV, uh, Amazon prime, anything you can imagine that he'll, this company will be taking care of of that part. And, you know, to me, that was like a, that's kind of a monumental thing because it's also down to the low karma. And if I was doing it on Joe Schmo and the Schmoes, I think it'd be a different way of trying to, you know, trying to shop that movie. They still have the karma, man. <laughs> well, it's important. And it, it is monumental, Simon, because that's the way people watch things now. And maybe you'll talk a little more about your experience trying to get subversives onto the various streaming services like Netflix, for example. Part of my, that sort of early 20s wonderment was like, I, you know, and I knew around this time, I know that Netflix is looking for Canadian content. They have so many rules and stipulations about even what type of camera you use. Like you can, they have approved cameras. My camera, does it fit in the role? I'm sure you could say, I don't know how they'd figure it out, but you can only say if you had something, had some GoPro shots, there only can be a specific few amount of, it's a percentage thing. Uh, and I don't know if my camera actually fills it, uh, fills that that void, but we won't say anything. Let's just say it does. Um, if if Amazon, sorry, if Netflix picks it up, to me that's like, I I, I don't know. That would be like, well, I guess I I uh, I could go do more movies now because I am. This is a name. 
you know, the other thing I did is I actually put it throughout all the independent movie festivals and it really, to me, it did well. And part of it, and I have a like a bit of imposter syndrome because like, are these things real? Because, you know, you get the laurel and you get the thing to put on your thing and it's like, you know, good, but it, you know, it won in Sacramento and I think it won in Dublin, but they're online festivals. So it might say like, I think after that, that unspeakable thing that happened a couple of years ago when people had to stay in their houses, I don't like to mention that. Uh, I think I think a lot of people just started this virtual um, cinema uh, festival thing, you know. But yeah, no, there's like ten awards uh, nominations. I think it got nominated in in like Montreal, like the Independent Film Festival, and stuff like. So it's one of those things. Is like I don't want to get an ego and say, yeah, of course it's great. But it was like a moment of like I think this resonates with people. I don't think this is just cool with my like. I know my mom loves it. You know, my family thing is great. You know, uh, you know, my cousin floored by it. But to me, it's like when strangers like it, that's, I don't know. That's, that's the, that's the idea of success. I, I can't even describe it. I agree with you. You need more than your mom and your cousin. When you hear it from someone else, that's when it really becomes fulfilling. And when you talk about film festivals, when we talk about in real life film festivals, not online, what's your experience been getting it into actually attended film festivals, including our own world famous Toronto International Film Festival? I didn't even try with TIFF. TIFF is just so political and it's so like you can put it there. And I did sub- uh, submit it to Hot Docs. And at that point, it was like, uh, gosh, it was, must have been almost two years ago now. It was the three hour version of the movie that I submitted to because I had nothing at that point. I was like, well, I'm going to miss the deadline. So I put it, I got rejected on Hot Docs. Uh, I got rejected for the Vancouver International Film Festival. But did it make it into the independent? Because I and I, it's funny, you can independent internationally, you might as well. I put it into about 20, I've submitted to about 20 film festivals, and I got, uh, I think, 10, accepted to 10. So that's not bad, you're batting 500, so I mean, to me that's that's fairly good. I actually, I, I thought it would be getting to Kingston, because I got offered to do it in the Kingston Film Festival, which comes like next month. And uh, they rejected it, which is fine. I think that's Bill Bill Walishka's part of that thing, um, an old much music guy. They rejected it because I think there was sort of like a lot of like I, I knew the 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 guy who ran the thing, so I was like, oh, you know, let's get a little bit of quasi nepotism in there. But he was like, listen, I, I could push it in, but it's not going to help you. I'm like, that's fine, you know. So yeah, so like I said, you know, it comes back to that idea of rejections. Like you just either take it and go back, move on, you know. You got to keep moving forward. And of course, that brings us to the million dollar question. Where can we today watch Subversives, the history of Lowest and Low? You can actually search out, uh, well, if you go to this website, the, it's called thelowdoc.gumroad.com. You, that's my, that's, there's a, there's a service called Gumroad, which does streaming and it's like a, it's amazing, actually. It's just the only thing that does it in the world where you can buy the movie, stream it there, or download it. And that's where I, I, I've been selling it. As this licensing deal comes more to fruition, it will start going away. Uh, there'll be certain things on there. Like I, I actually took the whole movie and made it into a transcribed book, which has been doing really well because I think as a fan, you want something to hang on to and everything is in this virtual world that you know, in lieu of a DVD or Blu-ray, you have a book. The book will probably stay there. I have a, a one-hour mini-doc that I did that focuses on the Shakespeare My Butt album. That's probably going to stay there. 
So that's where you can go today, but I'm not promising that next week it'll be there. So, cause as I, I think as we get off this conversation, I'm going to sign this contract and send it away and then we'll have more to announce. Hopefully when the episode comes out, we can actually put a, put an actual announcement out. Excellent. I love that. Breaking news on the podcast, greater distribution for the documentary. And Simon, you alluded to this. Interestingly, this is not all you have done with reference to Lois and Lowe. You've also done another project called Song for Song, Shakespeare in My Butt. What is this project about? Uh, there was a time uh, in the days of two-inch tape, which is like this, you know, that's analog tape, that they found the master tapes in Steve Stanley's basement. Steve found it in his basement. And he was like, it's all sitting there, all like five reels of tape, the whole album's on there except for the one song subversives. So they, what Ron did is booked some studio time and he actually said, Hey, do you want to come with a camera and sort of pick up whatever you got? And so what I did is I ran in with a camera and took all this video of them listening to this album for the first time since they did the way they could solo the snare drum or solo the bass guitar and hear what it was and, and maybe find some like magic that doesn't, they never made the album. And over those songs, the seven, 16 songs on that recording session, there's like one track that they didn't use. And everything got kept. So that was a bit of like, but the, that, that's part of the story. Is like, I can't believe that how tight they were to make that record in the fashion that they made it. And they have like one of their classic songs, like you have 24 sort of spots to put all your tracks and your music on. They have like one song that has like six open tracks. Like, what do you, you know what I mean? If it's today... I have a session I just did with a three or four piece band last couple of days ago that has like 40 tracks. And it's like, well, how do you fill it up like that? So it's basically a sort of a conversation where they're listening into and talking amongst each other. And Steven and Ron have had, had their good friendship now, but there was a time where they just weren't speaking with each other. I think it was like six years at one point. They didn't even like seen each other. And this now all those wounds are healed and they can understand that there's a legacy to the band rather than the band being the albatross, you know, and that's them sort of listening for the first time again, what they had done so many years ago. That's great. And, and that project is available where? Also on Gumroad. So you can go to thelodoc.gumroad.com. And Simon, you have also worked with many other bands. I specifically want to ask about your experiences working with two other popular GTA-based groups, Sum 41 and Platinum Blonde. Somebody One was an interesting one because I, I used to work for Trouble Charger in the early two, late, late 90s into the early 2000s. And this little band came out of nowhere called Sum 41 who were making a stink. Uh, and they were just like, in the day you had bands like, uh, I don't know, the Blink-182 and the number bands, they called it, the number, all the number bands or the bands. Then, then you had bands like The Strokes and you had all these type of indie rock bands. But Sum 41 sort of came up as this group of 18-year-old kids from Ajax. And I think Steve-O at the time was 17. And I got hired on to be their tour manager, and it was just me. So I was like the guy. And at that time, I was, what was, what was I? I was 20, no, I was 33. So I was like the adult. 
and I, <laughs> I'm like the one made sure they got to bed. And these these guys were psychopaths. They're crazy, and they, they just you know kids doing kid stuff. And um, I remember one specific conversation I'm having with the manager because they were also managed by Network. So it was Network out it was like Sarah McLaughlin's manager, and then Greg Norrie was their manager as well. I remember getting phone calls saying, you know, make sure they get to bed by two. And, you know, if they do anything crazy, make sure they're videotaping it. I'm like, okay. So I'm like in the van driving. I'm looking in the rear mirror. I go, you know, management's told me to uh, to get in bed by two and just don't be, you know, don't be crazy. We're in the States. But you know what? Don't do that because you might not be here next year. So like just have the much, just don't get yourself or me thrown in jail and we're going to do just fine. And I actually held the title for their longest running tour manager until a, a guy beat my record. But they went through like 47 tour managers at one point because they were just these lunatics. And they're not, they're not, they're not mean people. They're just, they're kids. They, you know what I mean? They're kids from Ajax who can't believe, like, where are we? Um, there's another quick story about them where I pulled up, I have to have to go to their houses and pick pick them up. And I was pulling into the someone's driveway and I think it was Cone's mom. She takes me aside because I need to talk to you for something. I'm like, sure. And she goes, uh, these are our children. You make sure you take care. <laughs> these are our children. You make sure you take care of them. Because if you don't, you're going to have to answer to me. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. You know, and I'm taking them to see the United States. Like, my daughter's 17. I'm like, my goodness, the stuff these guys went through. Uh, I'm. It's insane. But you know what? They just carved out this amazing career uh, there's, you know, their actual last show is next year at Scotiabank Arena. I hope to be there because it's a celebration of like, just, I can't believe those guys. The other thing those guys did in early 2000s, I had a band and I was putting records out in Europe and they like let us open up for them in Europe, like to like thousands of people. Like you didn't, they didn't need to do that. You know, they were, they were just such welcoming. They knew who their friends were, you know, to, in my opinion. I'm glad to hear, Simon. You were the fun dad. I was, I was a crazy uncle. Now, Platinum Blonde's a different story because Mark and, you know, Platinum Blonde is a band. Obviously, they had this huge success in the, in the 80s. And Mark is just this, he's a, he's like a, he's a, people are confused when they meet Mark because Mark is this complex person. There's more to him than what the stories that might follow him. And true, those stories are true. You know what I mean? Of, of this kind of chaos kind of like people like sort of being, he's a rock star. You know what I mean? And as far as I'm concerned, a guy like Mark Holmes gets a pass. But I'll tell you, there's been a few times, as I'm right now, I've been working for them as their monitor person. So I do their in-ear monitors and I travel around and make sure certain things, you know, I'm not their tour manager. I have been before and I'm just like, I'm not doing that. And, and, and Mark has sort of come to me and saying specific things and I sort of cock my head a little bit. I go like, really? Really? And I think the gray hair sort of gets me a little bit of a, a bit of a, an advantage. Because if I was 20 years old, I'd be crying. I'm like, why are you talking to me this way? You know? So it's just, there's a lot of crazy, I'm going to tell you one story. I've told a story a few times. I don't think I've told, nah, I may have told it on my podcast. We were, we were flying into Banff to play this or into Calgary to go to Banff to play this sort of private, sort of secure, like serious satellite private show. 
And so everybody sort of gets, you know, I flew in from Ottawa because I had something and they flew in from Toronto. We met there and this guy, nice guy comes and picks us up in an, in an airport shuttle. And we're driving into the darkness into Banff and the guy is looking and he goes, hey guys, uh, want to let you know that there's an active bear running around, you know, and it, it, it just don't be, don't be an idiot. Be cool about it. And like, because, you know, won't get by, just don't go up by yourself and just don't go into the darkness. Stay where it's like. And in the back, I hear Mark going, um, bears won't catch me. I'm quite fast. And I turn around and go, no, bears run 40 kilometers an hour. They'll eat you from the butthole first. Like, you got to understand, like, don't go outside because that, that'd be bad press for everybody if you get eaten by a bear. So, yeah, bears won't catch me. I'm like, yeah, they will. <laughs> the great headline for the platinum blonde story. <laughs> Simon, if you weren't busy enough with the documentary, you also have a podcast, as you noted, it's called Apologue. You have over 350 episodes. So congratulations, because that's a, an achievement. Thank what you. does Apologue mean? And what is your podcast about? Apologue is funny. I was I went looking through like a thesaurus.com looking for what it was like to spin yarn because storytelling, you know, tell tell stories. And what I caught, I, I fell on this word apologue that basically it means like uh, they're like fables that have to do with animals, talking animals. And I'm like, well, that's kind of a, that'd be a fun metaphor or some type of understanding about how a podcast is because you're like literally just telling stories. And so my, my, my um, icon has like a ball of yarn and not a lot of people picked up on it. And I, one guy actually came to me and called me on, he goes, yeah, that, I know exactly what you're talking about because he probably went to the same thing, apologue, what does it mean? And I, I, and spinning yarn is in there because it's like a phrase to say we're just, you know, telling stories. Yeah, it's been the thing that I've done uh, nine years now, nine years. And I was doing an episode a week for the first two or three years. Then it got really, you know, as you know, it can be quite taxing on your time. Uh, as soon as I get off this, I have to put one out for today. Uh, it is, uh, it is one of those things that it's, it's kind of, it, it it's in lieu of talk radio. That's where I see it. It's a conversational, long form. Uh, we come up, we solve the problems of the universe, and and nobody knows any. Uh, you know, nobody listens to it because it happened in like the minute like forty eight. You know, and you know it's not a huge podcast, but it's been going, and and I've, like I said, it's it's been a vehicle to be able to start this production company, which is called Apple Art Productions which is now anything under the movie, if a movie or film falls under that production uh, company, which I think is a version of it's, if it did anything, it created this vehicle for me to sort of keep, you know, keep that part going. Well, you certainly have your hand in a lot of pie. So as we close up, Simon, where can listeners best follow you, connect with you and get all the details on both your lowest little documentary and your podcast? Podcast is on Facebook, Apologue Podcast, uh, Apologue Pod, I think is what it's what it is. The website is apologue.ca. The my my Facebook is uh, it, there is one for the yeah there's one for the podcast on. It's like I think I already said that. I'm not really on Instagram because I, I don't. I don't know, I, my Instagram is pictures of my bicycle, and that's not code for anything. It's just pictures of my bike. Uh, it should be called my bike. That's what the the user handle should be. I'm not on TikTok, uh, but you can find me on, like I said, on Facebook under the Apolog Productions. Subversives, uh, the history of Lois Low is a Facebook group page. So you want to be a part of that. 
And um, like I said about the production company, anything podcast now will be turned to production. So the Apple podcast is now called the Apple Productions Facebook page. And and that, and if you want to go get the movie, that'd be super cool. Uh, get it while it's while it's here because it might be gone soon. And um, yeah, I mean, if anybody wants to email me, uh, I have the, the low doc at Gmail. If anybody wants to do any backyard screenings this year coming up, I did a few of those, one or two of those last year, and it was super fun. Uh, I'm more than willing to put all the gear in my car and, and drive it out. The other thing I do, I've been recording bands for the past 30 years, so I, I have a small recording studio called Insight Recorders. And like I said, all that stuff's going to get folded into the Apolog website, so they'll be try to take a handle on it, make a make it into like this one thing. Yeah, that's it uh, for now. <laughs> that's it for now. That's great. Well, clearly a busy guy. Simon, I want to thank you for your time. It was great to meet you. Great to hear some of your stories. Great to hear about the whole process of the doc. And of course, I want to wish you uh, continued success. Thank you, Andrew. And, you know, and thank you for having me on such a pre- prestigious podcast. You know, Legends is sort of like uh, the inner narcissist in me is going, yeah, that's right. I'm a legend. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about the movie and about my life. And there's some really notable people on your podcast, and it's really a, a, a joy to be lumped in with, with that cool group. Well, thank you for your kind words. It's been my pleasure to have you. And to the listeners, on behalf of Simon Head, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca.